I'm Ariane Elfant, and this is Death the Podcast. Death may be defined as the destruction or permanent end of something. At Death the Podcast, we are looking closely at what happens when something ends. We listen, learn about, and discuss the stories that surround the subject of death. These stories bring up much more than feelings of fear and sadness. They offer opportunities for connection, for hope, and sometimes even for humor. Ultimately, if we are open to exploring death, we create greater potential to experience life. Our guest today is Jill Farberic. Jill is a single mother of two teenage girls and is a full-time school teacher. Less than three years ago, Jill's life looked very different than it does today. At that time, Jill was married to a man she loved and adored, a man who was a devoted husband, a wonderful father to their girls, and a pillar in their Seattle community. While on a family vacation, Jill's husband tragically lost his life as a result of a ski accident. Jill is joining us today on Death the Podcast to share her story and to talk us through how one moves forward each day after this kind of loss. Welcome, Jill. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's really nice to have you. Can you tell us about Ray, Jill? I'd be happy to. Um, Ray was, um, he was no couch potato, I must say, about my husband. As much as I like to sleep in on Sunday morning, he was out in the garden doing stuff. Um, we, uh, we had a great marriage. We had a wonderful life together. I always used to say how charmed my life was. Um, and uh, it was because of Ray. He was just a great husband. He was um, a father beyond comparison um, in so many ways and beyond my expectation. Um, yeah, he was super active. He loved skiing. He taught our children how to ski and play soccer. He just was always doing something. I always said if he didn't have a project, he created one. He'd break things just to <laughs> fix them. Um, so he was always, always going, always doing something. And if he didn't have something to do at home, he was helping a friend. You know, when somebody dies, people say such great things about a person, right? You never say the bad stuff about somebody after they die. And after Ray died, everybody said such great things about him and they were all true. It was one of those experiences where it wasn't made up to make me and my children feel better. It wasn't um, sugar-coated in any way. Everything people said about my husband and have said about him since his passing has all been 100% real, authentic um, love and truth and respect for him. I remember I got a, a Facebook message early on after my husband died from somebody and um, opened it up and it was a woman who had known my husband through the soccer world where my husband was the president of our local soccer league and he had for years been paying for her children to play soccer. I never knew it. For years he was paying for them to play soccer and for all of their equipment out of his own personal you know account. It wasn't through the soccer league or anything. So those are the kinds of stories that came forward after Ray died. It wasn't you know he owed me money or (laughs) you know he ran over my dog. It was all just wonderful nice stories about him. Finding out things after somebody dies can be such a vulnerable experience. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like for you, it just like enlightened this person that you already knew. Yes. And I knew these things about my husband, right? I knew how great he was. I knew how generous he was with our community and our friends. Um, But I didn't know other people knew it. Yeah. You know, I mean, 
I just did not know the level of um, respect and love he had out in the community. So it was incredibly comforting to me to hear that other people knew what I knew about my husband. Can I ask you to tell me a little bit about your family ski trip? Yes. Um, this was a trip that my husband and his buddy Steve had planned for years. It was a, probably about two years coming. Um, Steve had really loved skiing at Mission Ridge um, in Washington State and uh, a couple hours outside of Seattle. And Ray had wanted to join him on that trip and it took a really long time to, for some reason, to get this trip on the calendar. And um, of course we did for probably the last ski weekend of the season. It was in March of 2014 and we rented a cabin uh, just down the mountain from Mission Ridge. And um, it was gonna be, you know, a fun ski weekend. We took the day off on Friday, played hooky from school and work and um, drove up and woke up the next morning and uh, had a little breakfast. And like I said, I don't ski. So um, my husband and kids and Steve and his family all got ready to ski and go out for the day. And I was staying home. Um, I was gonna make dinner for the family. This was my night to, to kick dinner for everyone. So I was planning to just stay in the cabin and read my book club book and make some chili and um, wait for everyone to get home. So everyone got ready and I remember Right before Ray left, he asked if he could build a fire for me in the fireplace in this lovely little cabin. Um, so he started the fire for me. Um, and I remember really clearly hugging, kissing him goodbye and, you know, saying, have fun. I love you. Have a great time. And I was about to stop. They were taking two cars up the mountain because it was two families and all their ski gear. And I remember a couple of the kids were already in the car and I wanted to stop them and say, let me take a picture of the skiers and I didn't do it. And we had other friends that were coming up the next day to join us and I said, I'll take a picture when everybody's together. So I didn't take the picture. And I went back in the cabin and they took off and <clears throat> I made brownies and threw them in the oven and sat down and I started reading my book club book. Um, and I was reading a book that I have right here called uh, The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry. I don't know if you've read it. Um, but I read this one passage, and I have to read it to you because it's incredibly significant in the story. It's a story about um, a middle-aged man who um, is a little dissatisfied with his life, and it has, takes off. He just leaves. He goes to mail a letter one day and actually walks across all of England um, without telling his wife or anything. And his wife is left at home and um, doesn't really know what's going on and is worried about her husband and worried about their marriage and is probably starting to mourn a little bit about their marriage. And um, she's talking to her next door neighbor who actually is a widow and, or a widower, excuse me, and um, she's talking to him about the loss of her husband who's physically still alive but not there and his wife who's dead. And um, she says to him, I know how much you miss Elizabeth. And he says, I miss her all the time. <laughs> I know in my head that she is gone, but I still keep looking. The only difference is that I'm getting used to the pain. It's like discovering a great hole in the ground. To begin with, you forget it's there and you keep falling in. After a while, it's still there, 
but you learn to walk around it. And I remember reading that passage, sitting in this great house with the fire going and nothing to do all day, but you know, be by myself. And I read that passage and I said, I wonder who I know that is going to feel that. It was such a beautiful description of grief that I had never experienced before firsthand. And it, for some reason, the passage was so moving to me and felt so real that I actually closed the book and put it down. And I had to take a break from reading it for a minute. Um, and I'm telling you, three minutes later, my phone rang. And on my screen was my friend Morgan's face. And I knew for some reason that it was Ray. And I don't know why. I knew she hadn't called to say, we forgot something, we're coming back. Or I knew that something had happened. And I picked up the phone and Morgan said to me, there's been an accident. It's bad. They're doing CPR. That's what she said. So I threw on my rain boots and I went outside and I started walking up the mountain because I couldn't wait for Steve to come get me. And finally he got to me and uh, my kids were in the car. In the back of the car was Steve. And they took me up to the ski resort. When we got there, Morgan was sitting outside of ski patrol. And I just saw her and just crumbled on the ground because I knew that they were still doing CPR on him. And the only thing I thought of was by the time she called me, and I mean, I'd done all the math in my head, they'd been working on him, you know, for nearly 60 minutes. And I know you don't work on somebody for 60 minutes trying to get their heart started and that they're okay. So I just remember saying to Morgan, you know, he's dead, he's dead. I, I just kept saying that over and over. And uh, I remember this lovely woman from Ski Patrol came out to talk to me and I wouldn't look at her and I wouldn't talk to her. I was just, I just said, no, 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 no. Just go away. I wouldn't talk to her. And she uh, talked to Morgan and said, we're still working on him. We think we've got him stable. And uh, a couple of minutes later, they wheeled him out of the ski patrol room on a stretcher with the paramedics. And uh, at first I couldn't go over to him and they started wheeling him away to put him in the ambulance. And then I ran after him. I couldn't let him go without me. Um, and I ran over there and I looked at him and his eyes were partly open, but they were completely dull. And I just knew he was gone. And uh, they asked if I wanted to get in the ambulance with them and I just could not leave my children to drive by themselves. So I let Ray go in the ambulance um, to the emergency room in Wenatchee, Washington. And I drove down the hill with Morgan and my kids, she drove us down there and we got to the hospital there. And um, that hospital was such a difficult experience. And, you know, my kids were so, so scared. Um, so they airlifted Ray from Wenatchee to um, Harborview in Seattle, where all of the trauma patients in Washington state pretty much go. And Again, I couldn't leave my kids to drive all the way a few hours from Wenatchee, so I drove with my kids and Morgan back to Seattle, and my husband flew by himself in a plane back to Seattle. So the girls and I arrived and um, went up and saw him, and I walked into the room, and 
the doctor was somebody that I knew, which I had no idea was going to be the case. I, th I remember the first thing I said to her was how happy I was she was there because I recognized her. And it just felt so much more comforting to have somebody who knew my husband there. Um, so they were running tests and doing what they need to do. It went on for hours. You know, I knew in my head, in my heart, that he was dead. I didn't understand why they were doing what they were doing. And finally, I asked Lisa after hours of everyone just being in the hospital, what was going on? What, what was happening? And from what I remember, there's a number of tests you basically have to fail in order for the hospital to claim you as brain dead. And he hadn't failed all of those. There was a blood test where, I don't know, a certain number, certain amount of oxygen was still in his blood or something of that sort. And, you know, I just looked at her and I said, he is not coming back from this. And she said, he's not. So I knew that I had to make the decision. So I asked her what happened to him because I needed to know before I let him go. And um, he suffered no head injury. He was wearing his helmet. He um, did not have a scratch on his body. He had actually, except for some abrasions on his hand, there was not a visible sign of any injury, um, but he broke two vertebrae in his neck. And so he broke the vertebrae in his neck pretty high up and it caused immediate, pr immediate paralysis, which caused his heart to stop. And he went into cardiac arrest. And although ski patrol was to him very quickly and they started working on him right away, um, you know, I mean, even if they'd gotten his heart started right away, he was going to be paralyzed. And his, you know, it's not a, the kind of injury you recover from. And so I remember thinking it was fast and he probably had a moment of panic heading towards some trees. But otherwise, I think it was a pretty quick and painless experience for my husband. Doing something that he absolutely loved with the people that he loved most in the world. So I had a little sense of peace um, at the decision to take him off life support. So I told Lisa I wanted to do that. And um, told my in-laws that I wanted to do that told my children that we were gonna do that. And I just knew it's what Ray would wanna do. He did not want, he did not want to be kept alive. There was no reason. And I kind of felt in my logical, I'm, I'm such a realist. And in my logic, I was thinking, these doctors should be helping somebody who they can save, not spending this time on my husband who's dead, and my younger daughter Piper and I, and Ray's parents, and his brother, and his aunt and uncle were all in the room with us um, when we took Ray off life support. And I just remember, I had my hands on his heart, and they pulled the tube. And I just remember saying, I just kept saying thank you to him. Thank you for the life that he gave me and thank you for the children that he gave me and thank you for that charmed life that I always talked about.
Thank you for dealing with me. Thank you for being patient with me. Thank you for being the fun parent. I mean, all the things that I wanted to thank him for were just running through my head. And I kept telling him to go do something good, you know, to go give other people life. <laughs> you did an incredible job of, uh, of telling me all that. <sighs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I need to tell the story every once in a while, too, because it keeps it real in my head. Well, it, uh, I'm, I'm hearing so much, like, when you're telling it of, um, you seem to have a lot of clarity uh, right away about something that no one would want to observe um, or know. And, um, and yet you knew it and you knew you knew it. There's something really beautiful about that that speaks to uh, your, your closeness with him and his with you. It just made me realize that... Um, <clears throat> that I fundamentally know who I am and what I believed and I know Ray had the same um, beliefs as I did and uh, so in a lot of ways it made me somewhat pragmatic and um, like I said a realist in dealing with what I needed to deal with right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it, it's obviously a hugely emotional experience but at the same time stuff needed to be done <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> well well it did and i mean i heard um i heard the pragmatics and like why aren't we doing what we obviously need to do and why are we prolonging what obviously needs to happen and for somebody in uh the personal throes that you were in with all of that to have that clarity well, speak so much to you as a person, but you also, it's out, I mean, you, you really looked at your husband and you really saw what was going on. How is it to, to tell that story? I know you said you feel like you need to, to tell it um, now and then to keep, to keep him alive, the story alive, what happened alive. How is it for you now? Um, it's still so hard. You know, I didn't know that I would be as choked up as I was um, speaking of that part of my experience but I haven't said it out loud in a long time and I'm realizing now saying it to you that it's not any easier to say it out loud um you know like the character in the Harold Fry book I'm getting really good at walking around that hole but when I do fall in it it's still really deep mm -hmm. you know and yeah. really really significant yeah and I, I think it's kind of funny that somebody as um non-spiritual I guess is the word as me to have been reading that passage in the book and finding significance in it just probably when my husband was skiing into a tree is kind of amazing to me because um, it kind of doesn't go with <laughs> the rest of, of my story and my my beliefs and uh, I don't know I found it a a brief moment of spirituality in a right in a very realist and pragmatic sort of life <laughs> what well, well i i feel like it does speak to the um the relationship you described having with ray um the what was between the two of you y'all were very attuned to one another 
um, he seems like he very much was right away with you. And um, I don't know, I, you know, there, in, in some way there was such an important message there that something resonated with you right, right in what ended up being, you know, one of the most important moments in your life. Mm-hmm. What, what's been most helpful to you, Jill, in your grief process? Um, number one has been my children. My girls were 11 and 12 um, when their dad died. And, uh, you know, I mean, parents, we all know that we live for our children. So they gave me a reason to get up every morning and, um, they gave me joy every single day, even when it's hard. Um, so that's been my biggest strength is being their mom, having the two people I love the most in the world still in my world um, made, makes, um, everything so much easier. They were also old enough to help me. (laughs) They were, they're, they're helpful, um, helpful people. And so they've been great. Um, and the other thing is I met another woman in, um, this process who also lost her husband six weeks after my husband died in a skiing accident. And her name is Jill, and she has two kids. And uh, the day we met, I walked her to her car. We had the same car. <laughs> she she pulled out her wallet to give me something. We had the same wallet. <laughs> I said for a long time, I said she was the tall, skinny version of me. And um, so Jill and I um, met over this experience, as well as a couple other women who lost their husbands Um in, we called ourselves the Mountain Wives. We lost our husbands on mountains in 2014, in spring of 2014. Um, but Jill is by far the most significant um, of the people for me. We There's nothing like having somebody who just gets it. That's wonderful. So those two are the most significant things that have helped me in um, getting me, you know, two and a half years into my grief and still standing on my feet. Very much so. (laughs) Very much so. How do y'all, how do y'all remember Ray? We talk as a family. We talk about him a lot. Um, we do, we have, um, yeah, we talk about him a lot. We have our entire house is filled with Ray. He was, um, a huge gardener. So I never did any gardening. It was his place, and I did not very often share that space with him. Um, But now I go out and I just water just to think about him. You know, I feel like um, I'm with him when I'm doing that. Uh, He was a huge soccer fan and had season tickets to our local MLS team, Seattle Sounders, and I never went to those games either. That wasn't something that I really did. It was something he did with his friends, and I'd go to about a game a season when he got a second ticket. And um, but I kept I've kept up his season ticket so that I can go and be with him at the stadium. And uh, but the girls and I we talk about him a lot. We have things in the house that um, 
that reminds us of him all the time. My older daughter has his sense of humor and uh, makes us laugh a lot with with Ray puns. My husband was the pun master. Mm-hmm. Um, we we celebrate his birthday together. We have friends over and have birthday cake and talk about him. Um, but it has never been taboo for us to tell a dad's story or to talk about him. Um, it's really important to me that we keep telling the stories. What do you feel like you know now that you wish you had known? Well, I know that I'm stronger than I thought I was. I know that I can carry a family on my back, which I did not think I could do without my husband. Um, so that feels really significant and important to me, especially having two daughters, that they can see a strong woman who can take care of them. Um, so I know that about me, um, which is a really nice thing to know. I wish more women um, knew that about themselves. Um, I also know that um, about three weeks after my husband died, it was spring break and we'd already had a trip planned. We had a family, we have a family that we travel spring break with and we've been doing it for a while now and they're very good friends of ours. And I decided to go anyway. It was the weirdest week of my life for sure. It felt so strange and surreal and we didn't talk about Ray for some reason. I don't think we knew how and it was hanging over me the whole time. Like I wanted to talk about him, but I didn't know how to bring it up. We were with our friends and we stopped at a little store to get some snacks for the car and the kids were in the car and uh, my two friends and I were in the store and my friend Aaron goes and he gets some chocolate covered pretzels and he brings them to the basket and his wife says why are you getting chocolate covered pretzels and she said I got chocolate covered almonds and he said well I want the pretzels and she said but I want the almonds and um, in my head I'm thinking let him get the pretzels You can afford the pretzels. You can get the pretzels and the almonds. You're still going to be able to pay your mortgage and you're still going to be able to finish our vacation. Why are you arguing about pretzels and almonds? And this was not a family that bickered. This was not a bickering couple. They were incredibly pleasant to travel with. But the only reason it was significant to me was because it just made me think that I wish I'd let Ray get the pretzels more often. And how couples just tend to do those kinds of things um, that are so unimportant in the big scheme of life. So I just kind of learned that I needed to, I need to be a more relaxed person and I need to let things go. And um, I wish I had known that while my husband was alive and while we were in our relationship. I wish I knew what to ask for from people. Um, people wanted to help. People want to help. Mm-hmm. They just do want to help. People don't know what to say to me or my children. They didn't know how to react. I, I got a lot of sad faces and I got a lot of, I can't imagine. And I got a lot of, um, a lot of silence. I got a lot of people turning their heads and walking away um, that just couldn't face us. And, 
one of the things I wrote was that I would rather people say something stupid and bumbling than not say anything at all. The silence is harder than putting your foot in your mouth. And um, so I wish I'd, I'd somehow been able to communicate that to people a little bit, make it more, because I think people avoid the confrontation and the conversation because it's hard for them. And I feel like making it easier for them um, is partly my responsibility at this point because there's going to be a, there's going to come a time when that same person that cannot say something to me because I'm a widow and they're afraid to say something is going to face grief themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And it's going to be standing in my shoes and it's going to have people who don't know what to say to them. Um, I'm not saying this really clearly, but... Um, no, I think you I think you absolutely are. I mean, other people's loss puts us in touch with the potential for our own. And yes. that that is scary. It's mm -hmm. and, But it sounds like you would rather somebody sort of say that, like, yes. listening to you makes me makes me hear about everything I am so afraid of. Um, yes. And I'm sorry. Um, but it's also painful as much as mm -hmm. I feel for you to hear to hear your story. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah. also it's also this great equalizer loss. So and it sounds like you you found that out. Like people who mm -hmm. are also walking in your shoes are are the ones that can stand beside you, and you barely have to say anything, and they get it. Yes, like your friend Jill. Yes, exactly. What has come to me since Ray died? So many amazing things have come to me that I have often have this weird survivor's guilt. It's a lot less now, but. Um, Every once in a while, I find myself saying, I'm so lucky or, you know, things, um, especially early on, if I, like when I met Jill, I was like, I can't believe I'm so lucky that we met each other. And it feels horrible after your husband to say, after your husband dies to say how lucky you are, right? I have these mixed emotions where so much has come to me. My relationships are deeper with friends. My career has come to me. Um, you know, Jill has come to me, a deeper understanding of myself, a deeper understanding of what kind of person I want to be has all come to me since Ray died. I was just living my life. I was just um, doing what we all do, right? Getting up every day, doing my normal stuff, telling my husband to put the chocolate covered pretzels back and, you know, bickering with my kids every once in a while, not appreciating things. And then something significant like this happens, then you stop and you look and you say, wow, life is a lot richer than I'm making it. Um, and I am so lucky, <laughs> which is a hard thing to say after you lose your husband. Well, I love that you, I love that you speak to the complexity of grief, that both those things are true, that you have, mm -hmm. you have suffered deep loss and that you're very much in your life and aware of what you have. And both of those make a whole lot of sense. I have realized that I think I, I never knew before that you can feel more than one thing at a time. I didn't know it um, intellectually. I probably experienced it and never realized I was experiencing it. But I have really realized that you can be absolutely heart wide open 
broken, split, right? Full of grief and joyous all at the same time. Yeah. And, and you can feel them both truly and significantly in the same moment. Um, and I feel like I grew up thinking you're happy, you're sad, you're mad. And they, they, were, they were such clear boundaries on emotion um, when I was growing up and even in my adult life. And now I realize that those things are so fluid and you can feel so many different things at one time. And that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It <laughs> you is know? a good thing. It is a good thing. Yeah. It means you're alive. Yeah. It's... Yes. Yes. The word death evokes all sorts of personal feelings, images, and stories. These stories are amazing, and sharing them connects us more fully to life. I'm Ariane Elfont, and you have been listening to Death the Podcast. Join us for our next episode in this series. This show is produced and engineered by Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Jill Gross. Our theme music, It Happened, is written by David Milling and is performed by David Milling and Charles Milling. To hear more of David's music, go to his website, davidmilling.com. Our social media director is Jolie Robichaud. If you are listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher or some other podcast app, if you can take a moment to rate and review us, that helps other people find us. You can find Death the Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or at deaththepodcast.com. Death the Podcast is a production of INO Broadcasting. Summer's almost over, but at Old Navy, the styles are as hot as ever. Get to Old Navy now for 30% off all jeans, 40% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, get 30, 40, and 50% off all your favorite styles for the whole family, plus up to 75% off clearance. Hurry in fast. These deals won't last. The sale ends soon at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid in-store 822 to 828 and online 822 to 824. Excludes in-store clearance, bubbles, active, licensed, and men's package tees.